Hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I am Nurse Mo, and I am so happy that you're spending your commute time or your free time or whatever it is with me today. I really know how busy you are and do value the time that we spend together. So we are talking today through a quick overview of electrolytes. So very excited about this because there's some new changes coming to the next generation NCLEX, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Before we do that, let's do our listener shout out. And this one came through Apple Podcasts. And the name there is Taffy, followed by a bunch of numbers. So Taffy says this, thank you so much, Nurse Mo. I'm a year into my program and your podcast has helped tremendously. Between your boot camp, the podcast, and study sesh, I've been able to tie everything together. You're definitely a gift from heaven, and we appreciate you taking time out of your day to educate nursing students. Taffy, thank you so much for taking the time to submit that review on Apple Podcasts and for sharing how the podcast and boot camp and study sesh have helped you. I wish you all the best and can't wait for you to send me an email when you get your license so we can celebrate together. All righty. So today we're talking about electrolytes and you'll see students struggling with this. Maybe if you're talking to other students or you're in like a Facebook group or a Reddit subreddit, whatever it's called, you can tell I'm super hip, then you know that students stress about electrolytes. And what I mostly see is students stressing about the lab values for the electrolytes. So here is a really good bit of news about this. If you listen to my episode a couple weeks back, I believe it was episode 258, where I talked about some things I learned by attending a next-gen NCLEX conference, One of the big changes is that they're not going to expect you to memorize a bunch of lab values. If a lab, such as an electrolyte, is on your NCLEX, it will show the proper reference range, or it may just say the level is high or the level is too low, so that you're not wasting time memorizing numbers, but you're spending your time learning why the electrolytes are important, what roles they play in the body, what you're monitoring, and what you're doing about it. That's the key. That's the clinical judgment that comes into it. When I'm at work, when I open my lab results, guess what? When I open the results part of the EMR and I look at my labs, if they're too high, they're red. And if they're really too high, there's an exclamation point. And if they're scary high, there's two, maybe even three exclamation points. Like it tells me. And when I hover over that, it shows me the reference range. So they're trying to mimic real life decision making, real life clinical practice with the next gen NCLEX. And that's one welcome change that I'm sure you're probably taking a big sigh of relief about. But we still need to know why do we care that the potassium level is low? Why do we care that the sodium level is 120, which is way too low, right? So let's talk about some key things about electrolytes. So just a refresher, electrolytes are substances in the body that have negative or positive charges 
when they're dissolved in water. And since our bodies are mostly water, electrolytes are essentially everywhere. They help the body with all kinds of functions, maintaining fluid balance, regulating chemical reactions, inducing muscle contractions, and so much more. So let's first talk about calcium. So you probably already know that calcium is the major building block of the teeth and of the bones, but even more importantly, it's a key player in cardiac muscle depolarization and is crucial for nerve impulse transmission. It's also important to note that calcium is a pretty patent vasoconstrictor. So if your patient is hypotensive and has hypocalcemia, then correcting their calcium level can help their blood pressure improve. So calcium is found in two forms, bound and unbound. It is the unbound or free calcium we care the most about when we're measuring it. You may also hear this called an ionized calcium. If you don't have an ionized calcium level, which you get off an arterial blood gas or an ABG, you can calculate it, kind of estimate it, using a formula called the corrected calcium formula. So I know you're out probably walking the dog right now. I'm not going to share a formula with you over the podcast. It's pretty simple, but I want you to go and take a look at a blog post, a blog article that I did called Putting an End to Calcium Confusion. And in that article, I talk about the corrected calcium, how to calculate that, and what it means. So I will put a link to that in the episode notes. The short version is that it's going to look at your patient's albumin level. That will be a key component in your corrected calcium. Okay, so just know that you will have two different types of numbers for your calcium, a serum level and an ionized calcium, which you get off an ABG. Now, just know the only reason you really need to be aware of that is that your calcium replacement orders, which are typically in a protocol, if it's this level, give this much. If it's this level, give this much. Those are often based off an ionized calcium. So just make sure that when you're correcting a hypocalcemia, you're going based off the correct calcium number, okay, so that you look for it in the proper place. So let's talk a bit about high and low levels of calcium. So hypercalcemia, which is typically a serum calcium above 11 or an ionized calcium above 5-ish, this is really cause for concern because hypercalcemia can cause cardiac dysrhythmias, such as bradycardia and a short QT interval that can be very dangerous. And if you're curious about what I mean by a QT interval and you want to review that, check out episode 138. So again, hypercalcemia can cause some serious cardiac dysrhythmias, including significant bradycardias, short QT intervals, which can then lead to all kinds of cardiac problems. And you can also even have cardiac arrest. A patient with hypercalcemia will also show following symptoms such as nausea and vomiting, weakness, blurred vision, constipation or even an ileus, and decreased deep tendon reflexes. Now, hypercalcemia is typically caused by cancers, 
end-stage renal disease, prolonged use of aluminum-containing antacids, adrenal insufficiency and osteoporosis. Because of calcium's inverse relationship with phosphorus, you'll also see hypercalcemia when your patient has hypophosphatemia. So what are we going to do about hypercalcemia? Anytime your patient has an electrolyte imbalance, address the underlying cause whenever you can. You also want to make sure that your patient is on telemetry monitoring. You know, they're on that ICU-type monitor where you're watching their heart rhythm. Make sure they are on telemetry monitoring anytime they have an electrolyte imbalance that affects cardiac function. You could even do a 12-lead EKG if it's looking like the patient is having some dysrhythmias. Now, to treat hypercalcemia, a lot of times the MD will order fluids. They may order fluids and a diuretic to just increase the renal excretion of that calcium. And they may also give calcitonin, which can further get that calcium excreted out of the body. Another option is IV phosphate. Remember, Calcium and FOS have an inverse relationship. So when the patient has hypercalcemia, they have hypophosphatemia. So if we give IV phosphate, this can lower calcium levels because of that inverse relationship. Note, this is not just a simple benign therapy. It is only done when other measures typically aren't working. So we would try probably those other things first. Now, what about if your patient's calcium level is too low? This is hypocalcemia. This would be a serum calcium, you know, probably below 8.5-ish milligrams per deciliter or an ionized level below 4.5-ish. Now, we can also cause cardiac problems with hypocalcemia, and we really, really care about the cardiac function with hypocalcemia. With this low calcium level, you will see really dangerous things like heart blocks, ventricular fibrillation, and torsades de points. Now, some of the common signs you might see before it gets to that point, the key ones are paresthesia of the hands and lips, muscle spasm, and then we have two things we can test for, chopstick sign and trousseau sign. So Chofsteck sign is a twitch of the facial muscles that occur when you tap on the cheek just in front of the ear. You're basically irritating the facial nerve, and it'll have like this spasm and cause the facial muscles to twitch. So that's a positive Chofsteck sign, and that occurs with hypocalcemia. And then Trousseau sign is tested by inflating a blood pressure cuff, and you go about 20 millimeters of mercury above the patient's systolic blood pressure, and you leave the cuff inflated for two to three minutes. The patient will show a carpal spasm if hypocalcemia is present. So that's Trousseau sign. You'll usually see hypocalcemia caused by renal disease. It can also be due to parathyroidectomy or hypoparathyroidism. It can even occur in cases of multiple blood transfusions that contain citrate because citrate binds up the calcium. So how are we going to correct hypocalcemia? 
Can we address the underlying cause? Of course, we're always thinking that. And then we will probably be giving IV calcium gluconate. And this has to be given slowly over 10 to 15 minutes. You'll also be monitoring your patient for cardiac dysrhythmias, laryngospasm, which to me is probably the scariest part of hypocalcemia. I don't know. Airway emergencies just make me really nervous. So laryngospasm or strider. Now, if the levels aren't super scary low, it could be corrected with PO supplements along with vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency can also set your patient up for hypocalcemia. So those are often given together. So if my patient is having cardiac dysrhythmias, numbness and tingling or tetany, I'm definitely checking their calcium level. Now let's talk about magnesium briefly. The reason we care so much about magnesium is because of its key role in cardiac electrophysiology. So hypermagnesemia, that's a high mag level. It occurs when the mag level is about 3.0 milligrams per deciliter or higher. And this makes us really nervous because it can lead to cardiac dysrhythmias, namely significant bradycardia, significant hypotension, muscle paralysis, and respiratory depression. So I remember I had a patient once with an elevated magnesium level. They had come from an outside hospital to my ICU, and the individual was pregnant and had eclampsia. So one of the treatments for eclampsia is a magnesium infusion. And I feel like she came from pretty far away, like a hospital that wasn't close by, like from an outlying area. And I, by the time I got her, her mag level had not been checked in a while. She was on a ventilator because the severe respiratory depression with that hypermagnesemia. So she couldn't move anything. She was unconscious and she was on a ventilator all because of elevated magnesium levels. So in addition to treatment with IV magnesium for something like eclampsia, Common causes of hypermagnesemia are renal impairment and chronic use of magnesium-containing laxatives, such as milk of magnesia or mylanta. Now, to treat hypermagnesemia, first, let's try to address the underlying cause. And we may also give calcium gluconate if those mag levels are pretty high. Now, note that calcium gluconate is not going to do anything to help the magnesium level, but it will make the heart less likely to go into a dangerous rhythm. The patient will also likely get fluids and maybe a diuretic with that to flush the excess magnesium from the body. And with any electrolyte disorder where there's a too high level, dialysis may be needed temporarily to get things back into balance. You also want to make sure your patient's on that cardiac monitor And you're also keeping a close eye on their sedation level and for respiratory depression. Some patients, like the one I mentioned earlier, may need to be on mechanical ventilation temporarily. Now, what about low magnesium levels? Hypomagnesemia occurs when levels are about 1.8 or lower, and that's milligrams per deciliter. Now, because of that key role that magnesium plays in cardiac electrophysiology, We know that hypomagnesemia and the heart, probably not going to be a great combination. It can actually cause a prolonged QT interval, 
a wide QRS, ST depression, and T-wave inversion. Commonly, what you'll see before it gets kind of to that point are PVCs, or premature ventricular contractions. Now, going back to that QT interval, when the QT interval is too long, or what we call a prolonged QT interval, this can preclude the patient going into a rhythm called torsades de pointe, which is a French term that means turning on the point. And this is a form of ventricular tachycardia that is a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And we correct it by giving IV magnesium. And if we don't correct it, it can lead into V-fib arrest and death. Now, your patient can have low magnesium levels due to all kinds of reasons, such as excessive GI drainage or excessive GI output, alcohol withdrawal, hypothyroidism, and a variety of different drugs, including corticosteroids. Now, as always, the first thing you want to do when you're looking at this imbalance is see if you can identify and address what's causing it. You can also replace magnesium via IV magnesium, and we give that pretty slowly, two grams over two hours. Now, if it's really, really low, you're going to be monitoring that EKG and keeping a very close eye out for arrhythmias. Also, interesting point, if your patient is on digoxin, watch for signs of digoxin toxicity as this can occur when magnesium levels are too low. So when my patient has frequent PVCs, one of the very first things I'm checking is magnesium. Next up is chloride. I tend to think of chloride as the forgotten electrolyte, even though it has some really important functions, but we often overlook it, but it's actually the most abundant extracellular anion and will combine with cations to form all kinds of cool stuff like sodium chloride, potassium chloride, and calcium chloride. Another important function of chloride is its ability to help maintain osmotic pressure and thereby maintain fluid balance in the body. It's also a key player in acid-base balance and it helps maintain electroneutrality. Now you may hear people talk about something called the chloride shift. This is a way that the body maintains pH and it occurs because acidosis causes bicarbonate to be released into the plasma in exchange for chloride. The chloride is shifted into the cell. Now, because both chloride and bicarbonate are negatively charged, switching the two does not affect electroneutrality. So you'll see this chloride shift happen a lot. So let's first talk about hyperchloremia. This is present when chloride levels are getting to that 110 milliequivalents per liter or higher level, and then pretty scary levels above 115. So with hyperchloremia, we get metabolic acidosis. This is sometimes called a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. We also get peripheral vasodilation. And what do you think comes with that when it relates to the blood pressure? We get hypotension. Your patient will have decreased cardiac output as well. And if they're in metabolic acidosis, likely decreased level of consciousness. You may see tachypnea or even Kussmaul respirations as the body tries to blow off this excess acid. Hyperchloremia has many causes, including overdoses of salicylate, which is basically aspirin, methanol, and ethylene glycol. 
It can also occur in states of hypernatremia, intake of K-exalate, which causes potassium to be excreted and chloride to be absorbed in the GI tract, diabetic ketoacidosis, and dehydration. A very common cause is simply giving the patient too much sodium chloride, which is why you'll often see large volume fluid resuscitation done with lactated ringers instead. They're trying to prevent hyperchloremic acidosis. Now, like with all other electrolyte imbalances, your first course of action is to see if you can identify and address the underlying cause. You also want to take a look at what IV fluids the patient is getting, and if they're getting sodium chloride, 0.9% sodium chloride, you might want to speak to the MD about switching to a different IV solution. Some patients will get sodium bicarbonate to correct acidosis, and you'll monitor the patient for hypotension and respiratory compromise. Now, what about when chloride is too low? Hyperchloremia, that occurs when chloride levels are below 95 milliequivalents per liter around there, and really bad if it's getting below 80. This is a cause for concern because it can cause hypoventilation and seizures. Hypochloremia can be caused by excessive GI losses of chloride through vomiting, suctioning, and diarrhea. It can be due to dehydration secondary to excess sweating or in patients with cystic fibrosis. It can also be from the use of loop diuretics and fluid overload. So after you've identified and treated the underlying cause, Hypochloremia can be treated with replacement. This can be given PO or IV. Next up, we have potassium. It's probably the electrolyte whose value you'll always know, even if you don't have to memorize it anymore, because it's just so commonly monitored. And why do we watch it so closely? Because potassium plays a huge role in cardiac conduction. It also plays a role in smooth and skeletal muscle, but really, we care so much more about the heart because dangerous things can happen when potassium levels are out of balance. So hyperkalemia is present when the potassium gets above 5-ish, and it's critical when it gets kind of in that 6.4 and above range. While you're monitoring your patient for hyperkalemia, you will see tall, spiked T-waves on the cardiac monitor. Pretty sure that's always a test question. Tall, spiked T waves with hyperkalemia, possibly also a prolonged QT interval. Your patient may complain of muscle cramping, diarrhea, confusion, nausea, numbness and tingling in the face, the hands, and the feet. Now, at critical levels, your patient is at huge risk for cardiac arrest. So you're definitely addressing this quickly. So what would cause hyperkalemia? Usually it's secondary to renal failure, but it can also be due to trauma and burns where the cells are basically releasing the potassium they normally hold inside. Same with tissue ischemia and chemotherapy. All of these, again, cause lysis of the cells, which release their potassium into the bloodstream. Other causes include diabetic ketoacidosis and the use of potassium-sparing diuretics, especially when the patient is taking in potassium such as with 
salt substitutes that contain potassium. Mrs. Dash may be low in sodium, but it's high in potassium. Sometimes patients are taking potassium replacement, and then they're also on a potassium-sparing diuretic. This can cause hyperkalemia also. So to treat your patient with hyperkalemia, you want to make sure they're on that cardiac monitor. And if levels are really high, you're going to be giving medications, sometimes called a hyperkalemia cocktail. And they're called this because they're often given together. So the hyperkalemia cocktail is insulin plus glucose. So why do we do that? So insulin, remember, is going to unlock the cell. Think of insulin like a key. We're going to unlock the cell, and then insulin can enter along with the glucose, but guess what hitches on a ride? Potassium. Potassium kind of hitches on with that glucose to come into the cell once the insulin opens it. So I remembered this when I was a student by picturing a little car and the insulin opening the door, and then the car was the glucose, and then there was a little passenger in the car, and the passenger was Pat for potassium, and she said, thanks for the ride, sugar. And that's how I remembered that, so maybe that'll help you remember it also. So we give insulin plus glucose. And we can also give calcium. Again, it's not going to decrease the potassium level, but just like with that hypermagnesemia, it can be protective to the heart and keep it from going into a dysrhythmia. Albuterol is another medication that causes that potassium shift. So you may see that used as part of the hyperkalemia cocktail. Now, if the potassium level is high, but maybe not dangerously high, maybe the patient's not having significant cardiac dysrhythmias, they may get K-exalate. K-exalate binds up potassium in the GI tract, and it comes out in the stool. It's effective, but it's slow. So it's not really great as an emergent treatment, but it does work. Now, what about hypokalemia? Hypokalemia occurs at levels below 3.5-ish, and we get really worried when it's below 2.5-ish, okay? So when potassium is low, your patient may feel weak, they may have an upset stomach, they could be confused and have decreased deep tendon reflexes. I remember a patient in the ICU once whose potassium level was super low, like in the low twos. And not only were we really worried about his cardiac function, He had such decreased like muscle contraction, he couldn't move his body. So we had to correct the potassium before he could start moving on his own. So your EKG with hypokalemia will show ST depression, flat or inverted T waves, an enlarged Q wave, and that enlarged Q wave lies on top of the T wave. So it makes the QT interval look really long, even though it's not actually. And it can cause premature ventricular contractions. When your hypokalemia is severe, it can lead to dangerous cardiac dysrhythmias if not promptly treated. So the most common cause of hypokalemia is excessive diuresis. One of the main diuretics we use is furosemide. Furosemide causes potassium losses. So really common reason for hypokalemia. It can also be caused by excessive GI output, alcoholism, or shifts of potassium that occur in metabolic acidosis and during insulin administration. If your patient's levels are low, 
we're going to replace potassium. It can be replaced PO or IV. Now, if you're giving potassium PO, note that the pills are giant, first of all. So think about your patient's swallowing ability and they can cause GI upset. So it's better to give them with food. There's also a liquid potassium. I've never tried it because honestly, I'm scared to. Every patient I've ever given it to says it is absolutely horrible. It helps if you mix it with a little something, I think. And so if patients take it a lot, I ask them what they like it mixed with. But mixing it with maybe some orange juice, which also has potassium in it, by the way, or some lemon lime soda or some other kind of juice might help make it be a little bit more palatable. So just be aware of that. Now, if you're giving it IV, give it slowly. It's typically given at a rate of 10 milliequivalents per hour if you're using a peripheral vein and the patient's not on a cardiac monitor. If you're using a central line and the patient's on continuous cardiac monitoring or continuous telemetry monitoring, in the facility where I work, we can go up to 20 milliequivalents per hour in that case. So always make sure you know your facility's policy. Now, potassium is very irritating to those peripheral veins and burns as it's infused. So if I have a patient who's getting peripheral IV potassium replacement, I'll typically ask if we can get that with some lidocaine mixed in. And that lidocaine helps numb the vessel so that the patient doesn't feel the infusion. So if I have a patient who is showing PVCs pretty frequently, one of the very first labs I'm checking is potassium. I'll also be checking the mag at the same time. Okay, now let's talk about sodium. Sodium is really important because it plays a really big role in neuromuscular function, osmolality, and acid-base balance. Now, hypernatremia occurs when sodium levels are about 147 or higher, or when a serum osmolality is above 300 milliosmoles. And this can cause twitching, seizures, agitation, coma, muscle weakness, and lethargy. Your patient will also show signs of dehydration such as tachycardia, flushing, poor skin trigger, and a low-grade fever, very commonly. It is usually caused by an increase in sodium intake when renal insufficiency is present, or large water losses, which is why we see those signs of dehydration, and we have those large water losses due to things like diabetes insipidus. It is also pretty common in hypoaldosteronism and Cushing syndrome. Now, the most common way to treat hypernatremia is to dilute it with free water, not sodium chloride. We don't want to add more sodium. So free water is what we call just water without any electrolytes in it. It could also be with a hypotonic IV solution such as 0.45% sodium chloride or half saline as we call it or D5W. Now, if the cause is diabetes insipidus or Cushing's, we're going to be treating that underlying cause. Now, hyponatremia, which I tend to see way more often than hypernatremia, occurs when sodium levels are below 135 or around there, and we get panicked when it's below 110 or when there's signs of neurological compromise. Now, the reason we are concerned is, again, because it can cause 
really big problems neurologically. It can also cause problems with muscle spasms. It can cause diarrhea and vomiting and diminished deep tendon reflexes. So why does it affect neurostatus so significantly? Recall that sodium plays a role in osmolality. Basically, water follows salt, right? So as the sodium levels in the serum decrease, water is going to move into the cell in order to try to equalize the osmotic gradient. This becomes very concerning when we're talking about brain cells. When brain cells take on water, then very bad things happen. For more on this, I've got a super old episode, an oldie but a goodie, episode 17, one of the very first I ever did. So if you can handle my bad microphone from way back in those days, go and listen to episode 17 to learn more about hyponatremia. Now to treat hyponatremia, we're going to try to identify and address the underlying cause. And if the hyponatremia is mild, the treatment is basically fluid restriction and possibly with that increase in sodium intake. Now, if it's severe or if the patient's having symptoms with that, it will need to be corrected more assertively. So one of those treatments is hypertonic saline, which must be given very slowly to gradually correct the sodium levels. If we give too quickly, this can cause locked-in syndrome. You may also hear this called by its official name, osmotic demyelination, but for me, locked-in syndrome is much, much easier to say. So in this condition, that myelin sheath that covers nerve cells is basically destroyed, which drastically impairs their ability to transmit messages. So that is why we correct sodium levels very slowly. So hypertonic saline is considered a high alert medication. It is 3% sodium chloride. Usually there are other concentrations, but 3% is what is most commonly used. Recall that normal saline is 0.9%. So this is definitely hypertonic. It is only given in the critical care setting with careful monitoring of the patient's serum sodium levels and serum osmolality. Okay, phosphorus is next. Phosphorus is the main anion in the CSF and the main component of ATP. The ATP is why we care so much about it, but we also care about it in relation to calcium. When calcium levels are up, FOS levels are down and vice versa. Remember, they have an inverse relationship. So in a way, we care about FOS for the same reasons we care about calcium. In fact, many times your NCLEX-style questions will ask about hyperphosphatemia, but all the signs and symptoms and things that they're sharing are about hypocalcemia, so you have to understand they have this inverse relationship. So hyperphosphatemia occurs when levels are above about 4.5, and it manifests basically as signs of hypocalcemia, twitching, tingling, irritability, muscle cramps, numbness. It's usually because of renal failure, but can also be caused by vitamin D toxicity, increased cell lysis, and hypoparathyroidism. Remember, hypoparathyroidism is going to cause hypocalcemia. So we would have hyperphosphatemia with that. 
Now, in addition to identifying any underlying causes and treating any accompanying hypocalcemia, you may give oral medications that bind phosphorus or diuretics. You can also give insulin plus glucose, which also helps to move FOS into the cell, just like it does potassium. Just note that if this treatment is used, you need to check their potassium levels periodically and make sure that they're not going to become hypokalemic. Now, just like with any other electrolyte disturbance, if this hyperphosphatemia is really severe, the patient may get temporary dialysis. And then hypophosphatemia, when levels are below about 3.0, it can cause paresthesia that actually looks a lot like Guillain-Barre syndrome. The cells basically just don't have enough ATP to function properly. With that, you're likely to see respiratory depression as well, and possibly even myocardial depression or cardiac dysfunction. Now, low phosphorus levels are caused by decreased intake. A lot of times you'll see that with alcohol use disorder and eating disorders. It can be caused by diuresis, diabetic ketoacidosis, burns, hyperparathyroidism, and chronic diarrhea. There were actually a lot of reasons. Those are some common ones. Now, to treat hypophosphatemia, you're tackling the underlying cause. If it's mild, simply increasing PO intake is all that it takes for many patients. This would be KFOS or Nutrafos tablets. If it's severe, then the patient may need IV replacement. Now, IV FOS is not compatible with anything else, so you'll need a dedicated line for that. As that FOS level corrects, you want to keep a close eye on calcium levels and for any signs of hypocalcemia. And then lastly, we'll talk very briefly about bicarbonate. Bicarbonate is a negatively charged ion that plays a major role in acid-base balance. We don't often talk about it in terms of electrolytes. We talk about it in terms of acid-base balance. But the level of bicarbonate is mainly going to be regulated by the kidneys. Now, bicarbonate is measured directly with an arterial blood gas and indirectly with a serum CO2 level. So as bicarbonate levels increase, pH increases. It has a direct relationship. This is alkalosis. As bicarbonate decreases, pH decreases. This is acidosis. Remember, bicarbonate is an acid-base buffer. And if you want to dive more deeply into acid-base balance, then go back and listen to episode 65. So that wraps up our quick overview of electrolytes. If you're in my boot camp and you haven't yet gone through the review on electrolytes and you want to dive deeper, I encourage you to go and and look at that and look at clinical significance and your clinical decision-making about which electrolytes are going to be key ones in different disorders. So make sure you check that out. And then I will see you back here next week. We're going to be talking about the different types of nursing school classes. So if you're a new student heading into school or dreaming about or planning for nursing school and you're wondering what are the classes actually like, I'm going to spill all the tea on that next week. So make sure you're following the show and I will see you back here next week for that. Bye for now. 
This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.